We're going to be uh, over in 2 Samuel this morning. I hope you will join me there. 2 Samuel, great story from the life of David. I said earlier, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad we get to be together to study together and uh, think about what God has done for us and what that, what that implies about the way that, that we ought to live. Uh, we welcome every one of you here. We're so glad, so glad that you're here. Um, that, talking about kindness, uh, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for these videos online sometimes, these random act of kindness things. You ever seen some of those, you know? <laughs> Google it sometime, maybe this afternoon. I hope you, maybe you'll take time to do that. You can, you know, a warning, it can send you in one of those rabbit holes where you waste too much time, but all these videos online of people just displaying these random acts of kindness, you know, where they do something for someone out of the blue, unexpected, somebody's maybe in a bad spot in life, you know, stuff's all over the place. I want to come back and I'll talk more about that this morning, but I, I think what we need, what we need, we live in a world that's becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity, different reasons, increasing secularism in the world today, more people are not identifying with any kind of faith, and particularly maybe a lot of people aren't identifying as much with the Christian faith anymore. And there's this attitude towards Christianity, and I don't know whether deserved or not. It is what it is. And you and I have to think, I think about very important thoughts. We have to reflect on what we can do as Christians to try to help people see what Christians are really like. Some people haven't ever spent a whole lot of time around a real flesh and blood Christian, and I hope you and I might have a chance to spend time with folks and let them see. You know, not, it's not about us, it's about the one we serve, but let them see what a Christian, how a Christian actually lives. There's a story in 2 Samuel 9, and I want to just read it to you. We didn't read this as I asked Johnny to read a different section of Scripture. By the way, what, what Johnny read for us a few minutes ago was, this is important for this chapter, what happened was David and Jonathan, remember this story? Maybe you remember David and Jonathan were very close. They were best friends. You know, they loved each other. They were, uh, man, they were just, they were very important to one another. And when circumstances were changing and Jonathan, who was the son of the king, realized that Jonathan was not going to succeed his father Saul as the next king, but rather God was going to give the kingdom to David, Jonathan and David, best friends, had this conversation and in the conversation that we read earlier, Jonathan asked David, he said, when God gives you the kingdom, please be kind to my family. In fact, he uses a word, I'm going to come back and talk to you a little bit more uh, later, but he uses this very, very powerful word in the Old Testament. It's translated often, steadfast love. Show steadfast love to my family. Now, a lot of time has passed since that day. God has given David the kingdom. Jonathan is dead. Saul, David's predecessor, is dead. David has had some success. God has blessed him. The kingdom is now his. He's, he's got some peace now. And that's when we come to 2 Samuel 9. Just listen to this. I want to read the whole chapter. It's only 13 verses long, and I, I want to go back and reflect on it a little bit this morning. 2 Samuel 9. David said... Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? 
Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, came, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage to him and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants, and Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And he was lame in both his feet. 2 Samuel 9, 1 through 13. Uh, this, this is, I don't know. It's a great story, I think, because you've, you've got David in this... Position of prosperity. I mean, God has blessed him. You know, he's he's in a position where God has taken care of him, has given him the kingdom, and and David is. I don't know. I, I picture David sitting in his house one afternoon, and and he and he has this thought. And he, he remembers he, he's got a break, like he's been really busy because they've been ha- having a lot of conflict, a lot of stuff had to be done, but now he's got a break, and he and he remembers this conversation that he and Jonathan had before Jonathan died and and the conversation that we read earlier Johnny read for us earlier was Jonathan pleading with David and said uh, John uh, David um, show my family some kindness you know when God takes care of you show my family some kindness and David asked the question you see that see that question there is there anybody left is there anybody left from from Jonathan's family that I, that I can show some kindness and this word by the way is a word that is an important Old Testament word in fact in that text that we read earlier the text where Jonathan has this conversation with David he says show my family the steadfast love it's this word that's very important in the Old Testament I want to read in fact I want to read you this passage from Exodus 34 Listen to this. This is, a, this is one of those passages, one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. God is describing his nature. He's describing who he is. He's in this conversation with Moses and the Israelites. And, and so God, God, this is a story, just, just a little context. This is a story where Moses is discouraged. He's distraught. He, he wants to quit, you know, and he says, uh, he's in a difficult spot. And Moses says, Lord, I need to see you. You know, I need to see you. I don't, I don't, I don't know what in the world is going to happen. I don't know how this is all going to work out. And he says, I need to see you. I need to see your glory. And God says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to cover you up. And I'm going to pass by you. 
And after I pass by you, I'm going to uncover your eyes, and you'll, you, you'll, like, you'll see the remnants of my glory, something like that. It's a great story. Here it is, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. This is what happens. The Lord passed before him. He passed before Moses and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Listen to that word, those two words. That's one Hebrew word. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, the children, children's children to the third and fourth generation. But that description of God, you've got several things here. He's merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love, and he's abounding in faithfulness. He keeps his steadfast love for thousands, and it, it, it influences how God treats us. This word there, in, um, in English, it's H-E-S-E-D. And and God uses it repeatedly to describe how he is faithful to his people. He gives them what they don't deserve. He takes care of them when they don't deserve it. He is patient with them when they rebel. It is God's steadfast love. And so when Jonathan has this conversation with David later on, he says, David, when I am gone and when God has given you the kingdom, show hesed, show steadfast love for me and my descendants, for my family. And so when David is sitting in his house one afternoon in 2 Samuel 9, and he starts thinking about that conversation with Jonathan, he says, is there anyone left? Is there anyone left from Jonathan's family to whom I might show hesed? This this, this self-descriptive characteristic of God, when God says, this is who I am, I am a God of hesed. Jonathan says, David, when I am gone, when God gives you the kingdom, will you show my family hesed? And David is sitting around in his house one afternoon, and he says, is there anybody from Jonathan's family left to whom I might show hesed, steadfast love? In other words, is there anybody that I can take this characteristic of God and I can show that hesed, that nature of God to another person? Is there anybody for whom and to whom I might act like God. And so he does. They tell him, well, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, and the background of this, by the way, is when all this stuff was happening and the king was in tumult and and Mephibosheth was a child and his nurse, you know, there was chaos, there was battle, and the nurse picked him up and she was running out of the house carrying the little baby Mephibosheth, and she dropped him. Whatever happened to him physically left him in a state of disability. He couldn't walk. That's how it happened. That was the story, the backstory. So they come to David and they say, well, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, is still alive. He's disabled. You know, he, and, and in that world, especially in the ancient world, it was a, a very difficult situation for someone like Mephibosheth without any kind of you know, help from others. Mephibosheth himself would have been able to care for himself in that day and time, you know. He's in a a bad situation. I mean, when you read about the language that's used to describe him, it is a a description in 2 Samuel 9, the way these words, what they would have communicated was a description of helplessness with Mephibosheth. And I think that's important for our story because there's a sense in which this story stands as something bigger than just a story of David's kindness. I'll come back to that in just a second. But he takes 
this opportunity. He says, is there anybody I can act like God to, that I can take this attribute of God and I can show it in the life of someone else? And they say, well, Mephibosheth, he's disabled. You can do it. So he calls Mephibosheth. He restores all of Saul's lands to him. He says, you are going to, you are going to be at my table. You're never going to lack for anything. I'm going to care for, you, care for you from now until the day that you die. You're never going to have to worry about whether you're going to be taken care of or not. It's a beautiful story of kindness. Mephibosheth is rightly grateful because you know the world that David lived in, the way it was in the world. When you took over as king, <clears throat> when you took over as king, you immediately eliminated all the potential rivals to the throne, right? So what David, and David didn't always act as he should have, but this is one of those cases I think where David is acting nobly. David, if he had been another king, not a king who submitted to God, he would have eliminated all potential rivals, and so he would have destroyed Saul's line. Saul, he would have made sure Saul's gone. He would have made sure that all Saul's sons are dead, that Saul's grandsons are taken out of the picture so that there's nobody who can come along and say, well, the throne is mine. But instead of doing that, instead of doing what another king would do, David rather exhibited kindness to Mephibosheth. Now, this is, this is God. This is the Hesed idea. God acts kindly toward us. Now, think about this with me for just a second. In, in our story here, I believe that there's a sense in which it, it anticipates a greater kind of kindness. Because what David does is he reaches out to someone who is not able to care for himself, he reaches out and does a thing, a good thing for someone who cannot do it for himself. He bestows on him this act of favor and kindness to someone who is helpless in, his, in that current condition, right? And I think there's a sense in which that anticipates a greater act of kindness. Joel's thoughts prior to communion this morning, I think, reflect that idea that what we see at the cross, really what we see in the life of Jesus culminating in the cross, is that action. It is, God, it is God being kind to us when we didn't deserve it and we could do nothing to gain it. We couldn't earn it. That is the story of the gospel, really. And I think this, you know, the story of David here is a story of the gospel itself. It's, it's God distributing to us, giving us, is acting in love and kindness toward us when we are in a situation where we can't deserve it and we can't get it, we can't earn it. This, uh, one of my favorite passages is Ephesians 2. It's, it's got a ton in it. But Ephesians 2, it starts out with this description of us, you who were dead in trespasses and sins, you walked in them, you were the children of disobedience, you lived in the passions of your flesh, and so on. And then he says in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He says in verse 7, that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, by grace you're saved through faith, not of works, lest anybody should boast. But you know, you see, the thing of the gospel is, you and I, dead in trespasses and sins, living in outright rebellion to the one who created us, and God looks down on us with mercy and kindness, and he gives us what we don't deserve. Now, 
I want you to, I want to show you, I want to connect these dots. And you, we've already talked about this a little bit. David says, I want, to, I want to act kindly toward someone in Jonathan's family. That anticipates what God is going to do for us in Christ. You know, what he has done for us and continues to do. But what that means, we've talked about this already a little bit, but what that means is God has called us to be like that in our world today. I want to spend the last few minutes talking to us about kindness. 2 Timothy 2.24 The Lord's servant... Actually, there's another little phrase in there. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but he or she must be kind. Our world today is not a kind place. Doesn't mean there aren't kind people in it. There are. But our world, in many respects, is not a kind place. Sometimes people sit behind the anonymity of their keyboards and they say incredibly harsh and mean things online. You notice that? In fact, I saw just this last week that one particular site had shut down comments because, well, you know why. You can't let people comment in a public forum anymore. Because people say all sorts of ugly things. We live in a world, and again, I don't know if it's any worse than the world has always been, but perhaps it's exacerbated a little bit by social media and the possibility in certain contexts of being anonymous. But we live in a world where there's so much hostility and anger and there's just meanness and people treat one another poorly and there's this pressure on us to put everybody with whom we disagree in this box. And in that box they are everything that I hate. They are bad. They are just, they are totally depraved, you know, because they are not like me. There's this temptation for us just to put everybody who's other over there, you know. God has called us to be different. You don't have to be a Christian to be kind. But I think Christians ought to be, and they usually are, at the front of the line. Christians ought to be the kindest, and I believe they are the kindest people on the face of the earth. There was this study, this social psychological study called the Ash Experiment back in 1951. And it's been replicated many times. It's been tweaked and changed. And that's an interesting thing. You've probably heard of it before. Here's, here's how the study worked. Um, they would have eight people in a room. All right? They'd invite them to come into the room, eight people. Seven, seven of them were were plants. They knew what was going on, and they told them ahead of time. Well, well, the question that they asked all eight of them was, which vertical line, A, B, or C, is closest to the target line on the left? You see? So, 
which of A, B, and C is approximately the same height as the target line? You see that? What's the answer to that, by the way? C. All right, good. I had this kind of fear in the back of my head that everybody would say B or something. It would mess it up entirely. So it is C. So they invite eight people to come into the room. Seven of them know what's going on. They tell them, don't give the correct answer. They tell them what to answer. Let's say, you know, you answer A. You answer A. The eighth person in the room doesn't know about all that. And they allow all of the other seven to go first. So they ask the question, which of the lines is closest to the target line? And all seven of them say A. And then they get to the eighth person. What do you think he or she does? That depends, of course. By the way, the, um, what, the way most people will answer this, you, you all said C, but if statistics hold true, had I let everybody answer this individually, a couple of you would have gotten it wrong. Statistically speaking, about 1% of people get, get it wrong without any kind of pressure at all. Just, you know, that's, that's the, kind of the baseline there. The way it works, though, in that kind of setting is that the majority of people in that position will answer it the way everybody else in the room has just answered it. Which maybe that doesn't surprise you, I don't know. In fact, you're about 30 times or so more likely to get it wrong if you're put in a situation like that than you are to get it right. But I don't want to focus on that for a minute. About one out of four people will still get it right. About 25%. So about one out of four will say, and I can imagine what's going through their head, like they're sitting there thinking, wait a second, are you, are you guys blind? You know, are you crazy? What in the world are you doing? And when it gets to them, they're like, I don't care what the rest of you people say. The correct answer is C, about 25% have the courage, whatever, whatever it is, whatever, whatever hard-headedness, I don't know, what, whatever attribute it is, about 25% will still say, I don't, it doesn't matter what everybody else in the room is saying, I know that the correct answer is C. Now, I want to I talk to us just for a minute. I know, you and I know the kind of world we live in. We live in a world that's characterized by anger, by meanness, by a lack of grace and a lack of kindness in so many respects, let's be the 25%. Let's, 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 you, let's, you, let's not worry about everybody else. We can't fix everybody else. But what we can fix, maybe, with, with the help of God, is we can be the kind of people who act with grace and kindness toward others. You know... To, to our young people, let me say just a word or two. I, uh, man, you know, I know that it's true that you guys, you know, in your, in your school situation, whatever, kids can be so mean. Man, kids can be mean. I know that's true. And it's not just kids. Unfortunately, you don't grow out of this, you know. 
adults are mean too. It's not just kids. But I, I know there's a, there's a kind of a special sense. I don't know if it's because you're in close quarters, because you know with social media now and, and all this stuff going on, kids can be so mean to each other at school and in the world. You know, that's, I know that that's the way that it is. But in Christ, we don't act like that, you know? Christians don't follow that kind of thing. We're the 25%, you know? 75%, 80%, 95% of the world, they may be acting like that. They may be petty. They may be critical. They may talk about one another behind one another's backs. They may say ugly things. But in Christ, act differently, you know? You have the courage to say, it doesn't matter what the world is doing. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be a person of grace, even if I'm the only one in the room who's doing it. You know something else? That study, that ASH study I mentioned, that's back in 1951. It has stimulated all kinds of studies in the last 60, 70 years since then. And some of those studies have indicated that if there's just another person, so in that same kind of study, instead of you having seven people who say the wrong answer and you're the eighth, if just one of those seven will give the right answer, the person who's in position number eight, his or her responding correctly explodes. Sometimes all it takes is one person to stand against the crowd to give the other people the courage to do the right thing. Let's be that person. If you're in a youth group, if you're older, if, if you're in a workplace that's characterized by bitterness and anger and people talking about one another, making fun of one another behind people's backs, let's be the one. You know, let's be the one who will stand up and say, I am called by God to be kind. You know, one of, one of the things about David and Mephibosheth and, the, and that whole story was that David didn't do this for Mephibosheth because of anything in him. It wasn't some particular characteristic of Mephibosheth. It wasn't because he was worthy, because you know he had some sort of special attribute. David did what was right because of the God he served. And that's the thing about us. When we are called to be people of kindness, you might, you might be tempted to say, I mean, I, I know I am sometimes when you expected to be kind to someone. Well, that, you ever said this? She doesn't deserve it. He, but he doesn't treat me right. But you know, you know what she has done? And you expect me to be... See, kindness, you think about it, God's, what we're talking about, hesed, right? We're talking about God's steadfast love. It is based not on the worth, not on the deserve, how, how the person has done something to deserve. It's not based on that. It's based on the characteristic of God himself. And so when you and I look at other people, we don't treat people kindly based on the fact that they deserve it. You want God? <laughs> Seriously, you want God to act that way toward you? I don't, I, I don't think I'm alone in this. I don't want God to give me what I deserve. I need kindness. I need kindness, kindness based on who he is, not on who I am. And so God has called us to be people of kindness based on the fact that that is the God we serve. 
Random Acts of Kindness, R-A-K, the acronym. Can I challenge you, and, and Joel actually mentioned this a second ago in his thoughts prior to communion. I appreciate his doing so. And I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you. I don't know how many folks we've got here today, 334 or so. I, would, uh, I want to challenge all 334 of you, and some of you might not be old enough to understand what I'm talking about. So let's just say 300 of us, uh, more than that maybe. I want to challenge you to do a random act of kindness. I know that can be cliche, you know, I know that. But can I challenge you as a Christian to do a random act of kindness today or tomorrow, or maybe you'll choose to do it every day this week? You, that, that, can look, that can look different depending on where you are. I mentioned I went down a rabbit hole this week a little bit with watching random acts of kindness videos. It's, it's pretty cool. There's some good people out there. Let's go out and let's go out and make a little contribution to the kindness that the world desperately needs to see. The world has an opinion of Christianity, but what you and I can do is we can act in small ways to help people see that people who follow Jesus or by and large, the kindest people on the face of the earth. I watched one video this week of just, uh, you know, there's so many of these that just bring tears to your eyes of a, a man who he had some sort of terminal disease. He died just a few weeks after his 30th birthday. He was always a big tipper. His name was Aaron Collins. He was a big tipper. He lived in Kentucky. And uh, one of his last wishes was he asked his family, after I die... I want you, he left $500, I want you to take $500 and go to some restaurant in Lexington, Kentucky, whichever, I don't, I don't think he told him which one he wanted him to go to, go to a restaurant there in Lexington, Kentucky, and just give $500 as a tip to whoever happens to serve you that day. And they got it on video, and it's a pretty neat thing, and somehow that got viral, you know, and he started this website, and They've done that now, that $500 tip. In all 50 states, I think they've done it over 100 times now since uh, Aaron passed away a few years back. And, um, and, they're, they're, and they just simply say, you know, our brother, he, he died, uh, the first one, he died a few weeks ago, and he left this for us to do. And so we just wanted to give you a $500 tip out, out of honor to him. And, you know, things like that, not, maybe not $500, it might be a bigger tip than you normally give on a Sunday afternoon. It, it, you, it might be that you go down, you go to the lunchroom and you sit beside the person who has no one to sit beside him or her. It, it might be that you pick out someone in your class or someone at church or it, it might be that there's, there's someone who just needs a friend. You know, it's, it's kind of how you use your words. It's a refusing to talk badly about people. It's a refusing to use your words to tear down and to make fun and to talk about. It's, it's a refusal to gossip, but rather it's to use your words to build up and to encourage. It might be that the clerk at Walmart or the grocery store just needs a word of encouragement. A person who's harried and stressed just needs to know that there's somebody out there who's kind. It might be that you write a card. It might be that you cook a meal. That, that question we started out with at the beginning in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 9, I'd like to challenge you to ask that question. 
And the question is, maybe before you go to a restaurant, before you go to work this week, before you go to school, before you go to Devo, before you go to church, before you go wherever it is you're going to go, before you go to the grocery store, the question that David asked was, is there anybody, is there anybody to whom I might show kindness? Ask that question this week. My guess is, if you ask it, and you ask it to God, that God's answer is going to be to open your eyes, to see it in the eyes of the people around you, that there are multiple people who just need to see kindness. They need to experience it in the life of a Christian. We've already talked about the kindness of Jesus today. I will close there. God has given us what we do not deserve he has saved us by His grace and His mercy and His kindness because of who He is, not because of who we are. And because of that kindness, most of us are in this building today as people who have a relationship with God and with Christ and with His Spirit. If you do not, we invite you to submit your life to the Lord. He is kind to you. and He has called you to be a part of His family. You can be baptized into Him for the forgiveness of your sins. This morning, if you need to come back to him and ask for the prayers of God's people at this place, we invite you to come forward now. If there's anything we can do for you spiritually, we will. Let's stand, let's sing this song. If you need to respond, I hope you'll come.